right from the jump, we know we're in for the kind of adaptation one can only find on late night PBS. Some of the highlights for the Christmas season on BBC Two. There's a new dramatisation of Dickens' A Christmas Carol, with Michael Horton as the miser Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> oh. Dreadful apparition! Oh. Why do you trouble me? Uh, do, you, do you believe in me or not? I do. I must. <laughs> Why do spirits walk the earth? Why must they come to me? And Count Dracula, a new dramatization of Bram Stoker's chilling saga starring Louis Jourdain. Count Dracula? Yes? I've been struck by a curious fact. Yes? I've not seen a single servant since I've been here. Yet my meals are served, my bed is made. Tell me, are we alone in the castle? Alone. Just some of the Christmas entertainment here on BBC Two. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. It has been an absolutely insane work week for me. I brought in five guests from the Osage Nation to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, Scorsese, invited tribe members to be involved in basically every area of the production. So we had someone in charge of costumes, another person who specialized in languages, someone from the art department, one of the actors in the film. And due to weather in both Oklahoma and New Hampshire, it necessitated making this a virtual event at the last minute. So it was a, a lot of pandemic PTSD going back uh, trying to remember how to do a YouTube live broadcast, uh, which I hadn't had to do in, you know, more than a year now, but ended up being a really great conversation. So was excited about that, but I have used up all of my husband's goodwill. So I have Eleanor here on the podcast, uh, while he's helping a family move in. So he, he's, you know, off, off being helpful and manly and I get to be here. Uh, as pop podcast mom. Okay. Well, we uh, we won't traumatize Eleanor this time because I think the infamous baby scene with the brides was not in this one, right? So thank goodness. <laughs> so I'm recovering from COVID. I just basically sat around watching movies, and I kind of picked movies that were ones that like I didn't really see in their first run because they didn't that got kind of bad reviews or I wasn't that into them, but that I thought still ha might have potential. And a couple of them were, ended up being pretty good, which was um, White Out with Kate Beckinsale. It's a, mm. a, a thriller that takes place in Antarctica. And uh, it's actually uh, better than, than it got credit for. And then the other one was um, Alice Through the Looking Glass, which was the sequel oh, to the yeah. Tim Burton um, yep. Alice in Wonderland, which like got worse reviews. And I did not really like that Alice in Wonderland. It was like my least favorite Tim Burton film. Wait, 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 hold on. You liked that worse than Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Yes. No. 
Yes. Really? Yes. Oh man, I thought Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was awful. And I like Johnny Depp a lot. So, so but you just warned us off from the Chal- uh, Timothy Chalamet. Oh, what? I guess what that reveals is I am Gene Wilder, Team Team Gene, all the way. There, there will be no substitutes. <laughs> well, anyway, through the Looking Glass, I was impressed. I actually liked it better than the Alice in Wonderland adaptation. One of the things that I thought I would hate about it was the fact that it doesn't follow the book at all, and that actually ended up working in its favor to see something new and different done. You know, just based on those characters. That was kind of my take. Without wasting too much more time, though, let's get into today's discussion about this Dracula film from the 1970s. We've already talked about Dracula in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Now we're up to the 1970s. A little background to the year 1977. In January of 1977, John Williams begins writing the music for Star Wars. February 8th, Larry Flint, publisher of pornographic magazine Hustler, is convicted by the Court of Common Pleas for Hamilton County, Ohio, for pandering obscenity and of engaging in, quote, organized crime, as defined by a then-new Ohio law. Flint was sentenced by Judge William J. Morrissey to 7 to 25 years in prison. After six days in jail, he was released on a $55,000 bond. Adjusted for inflation, that's over $285,000. The case would eventually get appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. This is not the infamous People vs. Larry Flint case. This was his first time going to the Supreme Court. He went three times, but uh, that is for another show. March 4th. The Vrencia Earthquake. Reminder, we pronounce everything wrong on this podcast. The Vrancia Earthquake is how I think it's pronounced. A 7.5 magnitude quake was felt throughout the Balkans, and it's centered on the Carpathian Mountains. It's the second biggest quake in the region in the 20th century, and 1,500 people were killed. April 2nd, Red Rum we've talked about before on the podcast, Red Rum won a record grand national triumph in what's widely regarded as one of the greatest moments in horse racing history. March 19th, on the 80th anniversary of the publication of Dracula, a BBC program called Nationwide documented the UK's Dracula Society's visit to Whitby to try to find key locations from the novel. June 4th, Vincent van Gogh's painting Poppy Flowers, worth an estimated $55 million, was stolen from a museum in Cairo, Egypt. It was recovered 10 years later and stolen again in 2010 and is still missing as of the time of this recording. In July, science fiction writer Robert Heinlein is asked to attend the San Diego Comic-Con. He says... You can't pay me back. You have to pay it forward. Popularizing the phrase, pay it forward. He agrees to attend the convention on the condition that they hold a blood drive. And so then the first annual Robert A. Heinlein blood drive, also attended by Theodore Sturgeon, who gives each donor an autographed copy of his novel, Some of Your Blood, an awesome vampire story, by the way, that everyone should read. To date, 
the blood drive has collected over 65,000 pints of blood. August 1st, Transylvania's Jew Valley miners' strike against the Kusheko regime in Romania begins. 35,000 of the 90,000 coal miners walked off the job due to poor working conditions. When local Politburo members tried to get them to go back, they were booed, pelted with garbage, and held hostage until President Kosheko himself showed up two days later and gave a five- or seven-hour speech. Accounts vary as to how long it was. And finally agreed to accept the miners' demands before he returned to Bucharest and ignored the demands and issued reprisals against them. September 20th, 1977, the hit TV show Happy Days aired its third episode of its fifth season in which star Henry Winkler showed off his water skiing skills as his character Fonzie jumped a live shark, eventually giving rise to the phrase jumping the shark, the point at which a show begins its decline. It's particularly apt because entering season five, it was the number one show on TV and it ended the season at number two and would continue its drop in the ratings every season thereafter. October 20th, Dracula is revived on Broadway with Frank Langella as Dracula and sets designed by Edward Gorey. November 12th, Prague rock band Blue Oyster Cult releases Spectres, their follow-up to their hugely successful Agents of Fortune album, the one that has Don't Fear the Reaper. Uh, it closes out the album with a five-plus-minute song called Nosferatu, which includes such lyrics as, This ship pulled up in without a sound, the faithful captain long since cold, he kept his log till the bloody end. Last entry read, Rats in the hold, my crew is dead, I fear the plague. These lyrics actually were written by Helen Wheels, who's an interesting character who we might talk about on a future podcast. Fans of the Toxic Avenger series will know who she is. December 16th, Saturday Night Fever is number one at the box office, beating out Close Encounters and Star Wars. And then December 22nd, Count Dracula aired in its entirety on BBC Two. I want to focus on the actor playing Dracula in this version, Louis Jordan, who... I looked at him like, that guy seems kind of familiar, but I can't remember what it's from. He plays Kamal Khan in Octopussy. Yes. Octopussy. Octopussy. <laughs> Octopussy. I'll always remember that line. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, but he's he's just so suave and sexy in this version of Dracula that I, I wanted to, uh, I must know more. Louis Jordan was born Louis Robert Gendre in Marseille, France in 1921, the son of a hotel owner. He studied in France, Turkey, and the UK and studied acting at the Ecole Dramatique and starred in his first film, La Corsaire in 1939. Well, starred-ish, they had to stop production due to World War II. He actually continued to make films throughout the war, which is kind of a surprise. He went over to Italy to try to do some filming there, but eventually, returned to France once things got serious over there. He spent a year on a work gang and he was ordered to make German propaganda films, but refused to do so. So he fled further into unoccupied France. 
He then started making movies again. Uh, he made 10 films in two years. Meanwhile, his father was arrested by the Gestapo and escaped months later to join the French resistance along with Jourdain, who said, I was given work to do and I did it. <laughs> Not a very romantic way of praising one's participation in resistance against the Nazis. But uh, once the war was over, he was discovered by David Oselznik. But this didn't turn out to be really such a good break. There were a lot of projects that Jourdain signed on to that got abandoned or he quit or was replaced. And all of his Hollywood films lost money. So he didn't really have a great career. And he decided to buy out his contract with Selznick for 50 grand, which was pretty steep even back then. But he did have a couple hits. Uh, he was the romantic lead in the film Gigi, which won nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And he did a ton of Broadway, including uh, the musical Can Can, where he played opposite Frank Sinatra and Shirley MacLaine. During the 1970s, now approaching the Dracula era, Jourdain recorded a series of spoken word albums about Babar the Elephant, <laughs> which now I really have to go look that up. And he did a lot of commercial work, which he said he took really seriously and even participated in the original concept in the writing. And said he said, after all, whatever an actor is doing, he's a salesman. So why not commercials? But as to Dracula, Jordan said, what is so interesting in playing Dracula is that I try to make monstrosity, or if you prefer villainy, attractive, very attractive. If we succeed in that, we have won our day. If the audience can be troubled enough to say that maybe Dracula is right in what he says, then we have won. He is an angel, a fallen angel. I think Dracula should be played as an extremely kind person who truly believes he is doing good. He gives eternal life. He takes blood and he gives blood. Therefore, he gives an exchange which is symbolic of love. And the sexual act, of course, <laughs> which Jordan seems to be dripping with that particular kind of charisma. The film, as you mentioned, was shown on BBC Two in its entirety, 155 minutes, on the 22nd of December, 1977. It was repeated twice in 79. And on both of these occasions, it was split into multiple episodes, which I'm kind of curious where they put those breaks. But uh, it did also show in the U.S., but has not become a masterpiece. And I'm glad that we are digging it out of its grave so that we can discuss together. I was wondering if you would realize that he was an octopusy. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I saw him. I'm like, this guy is, you know, like got the suave villain thing absolutely down. I have to go figure out what else he's been in. And so then I saw he was a Bond villain. I'm like, oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. We have a guest today on the program who I think is perfect for this episode. Courtney Floyd is a speculative fiction writer and audio drama creator. Her short fiction can be found in Fireside Magazine. Apex's Strange Libations Anthology, and Small Wonders. She's the showrunner of a lighthearted horror drama called The Way We Haunt Now, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, Courtney. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Back in the day, I wrote a dissertation chapter on Dracula, so I have lots of opinions. <laughs> um, yeah. So this, this one, it starts with Mina Westenra 
not uh, Mina Murray, but Mina Westenra saying goodbye to Jonathan Harker, who's her fiance, as he's leaving for a trip to Transylvania to go to arrange the sale of Carfax Abbey to a Count Dracula. So already I'm thinking this is not going to follow the novel because we've got Mina is Lucy's sister and, you know, it starts out in England, but I was wrong. It turns out this is actually one of the closer adaptations to Stoker's novel. You know, after this goodbye scene, you know, we jump ahead to the carriage already heading for the Borgo Pass. Harker wants to know if anyone speaks English because he wants to know why at his last stop of his journey, everybody was making this gesture at him. And it turns out it's this gesture to ward off the evil eye he learns. So they want to know why and... So they ask him where he's going, and he says he's going to Dracula's castle. Then everybody freaks out, and a woman gives him a rosary to protect himself for his mother's sake, I believe is what she said. (laughs) Once again, they look for the most wooden actors to play Jonathan Harker. Without fail, they managed to find the least convincing, least interesting person to play what I guess everyone has universally decided is not the hero of the story. They've just said, no, we can't put anyone in there who's really going to do something with this part because people will be confused about who to root for. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I think he's also the least interesting person in the novel, but I totally agree that like every adaptation seems from the jump be like, nobody cares about Jonathan. (laughs) In the novel, I care about him a lot when he's like stuck in the castle and trying to escape. But then after he gets sick, after that point forward, then yeah, don't really care about him. So they drop him off at the Borgo Pass, like in the dead of night it is pitch black, the wind is whipping and there are wolves howling and he's just kind of kind of on his own. Okay, we la- we're not going to wait for you because, you know, this is a bad place. So they take off. Fortunately for him, this carriage arrives to take him on to the castle, which, by the way, the castle, it's interior and exterior. Hammer Horror could learn a lot from these guys because the sets are so much better than Horror of Dracula. Much, much better. Yeah, I took the same note of very believable castle. A plus castle. The Brits were always better at TV than movies anyway, but uh, so... He gets there, Dracula meets him and tells him, you know, the servants are gone for the night. And he just heaves Harker's chest effortlessly up the stairs to uh, his room. Then they start to talk about the reason he's there, which is to arrange the sale of Carfax Abbey. And interestingly in this, they talk about how Carfax Abbey's name comes from the French for four faces, the four compass points or something like that. That's a detail I don't remember from the novel. So I'm wondering if they like made that up or. Yeah, that jumped out at me too. And I don't remember it from the novel. Okay. Well, it was an interesting detail that, that I was like, okay, I've seen a bunch of versions of Dracula and that's never come up before, but it's cool. It's a cool little detail. One of the things I liked about that moment was that it was a very quick way to sum up that he's knowledgeable of language and history and to give the impression that he's very 
intelligent and worldly. And I know that in the novel, there are other details of their conversation that kind of give that off. But I actually can't remember an adaptation of Dracula where I felt it as strongly as I did in in this exchange setting up the character. So yeah, even if it's not faithful to the novel, I think they did a good job including it. So we get some of the standard tropes that have made it into the movie. He offers him Tokai, which I swear to God I want to try still. I have never had Tokai. He eats on gold plates and drinks from a gold goblet. Dracula, of course, says he never drinks wine. We hear the howling of the wolves and he says, you know, children of the night, what music they make. Both of these lines, as much as I like Jordan, no one tops Lugosi with those lines. The way that Lugosi delivered those lines, just when you hear anyone else say them, it's like, eh, yeah, it doesn't work. He basically informs Harker he's going to need him to stay for a month to help him learn flawless English. That's pretty standard. We also get a couple of the scenes that we get in these things, usually like the shaving scene that happens in most Draculas, where we find out he casts no reflection in a mirror. Now that we're watching a bunch of these adaptations, it's interesting to see how each one handles the no mirror reflection element. Like, sort of how convincing it is. You know, the, we had the one where the mirror was inside the cigarette box or whatever, and they just, like, looked at it, like, 20 times. The hey, Drac, version. look, you don't have a reflection. Hey, yeah. hey. <laughs> yeah, and that, this was another one where it just seemed, like, a little slow and clumsy. And there have been some where it's good, and this was one I was like, uh, I'm hamming it up here a little bit. A bigger problem for me comes almost immediately after this, where... He's left for the first night and he sees Dracula out the window going, like, climbing down the wall. This is straight out of the novel. He's described as doing this like a lizard. But the way it looks in this looks ridiculous. The one thing, for all its limitations, Hammer actually got the special effects a little bit better. Every so often, this one goes into those weird state-of-the-art 70s special effects that's like the height of what you could do with video at the time. <laughs> if you remember when we did Caratelli or whatever, the Russian Fellowship yes. of the Rings. Remind yes. me a little of that, you know? Yes, yeah. <laughs> the, with the gray chrome image and the red lips and the teeth. Yeah. Yeah, flashbacks to the Russian uh, Lord of the Rings there. He falls asleep in the study and encounters the brides. Dracula's been around for a long time. He mentions in this that he knows all of Romanian history. So I figure the brides, maybe they haven't been around for, you know, half a millennium, but they've been around for hundreds of years, you know? They've been around for a while. Why haven't they changed out of their wedding gowns? Like, you'd think just for variation or something, they might decide to, like, throw something else on for a change. Why? <laughs> I actually liked that. I, I thought... That they're supposed to be kind of sensual, like for Victorian standards, like kind of loose. But um, but I like that they had a different kind of almost more conventional beauty in this film. The parts of them that are frightening were somehow more frightening because they were also seemingly normal when you first encounter them. Yeah. At first glance, they are sort of this like vulnerable innocence and that's what's supposed to be frightening about them so the, that their purity is so 
<laughs> it's like they're still mockingly. I don't, yeah. I also think that like it's interesting that they always end up in the adaptations that there are three of them no matter what. Lucy usually has three suitors too, but that's not always the case in adaptations. So it's like a weird mirroring of like Dracula and his three brides and then like Lucy and her three suitors. And there's something interesting that's happening there that, I don't know, the brides are more compelling for a film than the suitors, I guess. To your comment though, I think some of it is even in the novel, the bride's characters are not really developed. They can be three because they're kind of a monolith, you know, interchangeable, whereas the suitors are all very distinctly different people. And that I think I think only the one with my beloved Scary Gary in it Everyone! succeeds at developing all three of the suitors as separate people with personalities. And none of the other ones seem to think that they could make space in the film for those three full characters. So they mm-hmm. allied in this case, elided some of them or sometimes just cut one out. <laughs> well, the three suitors actually perform a function, right? So you have one who has the resource of money. Mm-hmm. That's Lord Goldaming. You have one who is like the manly man who has knives and guns and stuff like that. The Texan Quincy, right? And then you have Dr. Seward, yeah. who is the medical doctor and he's got all that. So you each one like performs a role. If we're going to have our Scooby gang or whatever, we're going to have our Dungeons and Dragons party. We have the cleric, we have the fighter, <laughs> we've got, yeah. you know, but with the brides, they're kind of interchangeable, you know, they're like, there's three and, and they're my main point that I brought this up in my notes. I'm like, why are they always in wedding dresses? Is this to remind us that they're brides and not some other random vampire hose? So I'm just <laughs> like, what, like, do we need the wedding dresses in every single one to remind us that they are the brides? Uh, that's the part that I just never get. Reflecting on it a little bit more, I think, too, like, it's really sort of telling us that, like, what Dracula does has to do with, like, this marriage business or you know like coded sort of sexual reference but the interesting thing to me and I didn't expect this to come through in the films just based on the time period is that in the book they're really kind of competition for for Jonathan's affections which Dracula is trying to win it's very obvious for Victorian (laughs) writing that sort of that's going on I think this adaptation actually kind of hints at that a little bit and sort of like the chemistry between Jonathan Harker and and Dracula. Yeah. 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 I've noticed that in the film adaptations, with the exception of, I think, the Gary version and Murnau's Nosferatu, that they tend not to include the line where Dracula says, get away from him, he's mine, to just point to that competition. But I agree with you, like the chemistry at least is here. I mean, the shaving scene for his shortcomings around the mirror, it does have that chemistry. Mm-hmm. Some part of me wondered whether Jordan is playing Dracula like a little bit sarcastic. Dracula says, trust is essential in human relationships, which I thought was just a great line. Not something I think that's in the book, but I, I like that they gave him this kind of subtle sense of humor. A lot of times in Dracula, you really don't see Dracula's physical prowess very much in the early scenes we saw him effortlessly take jonathan's chest up the stairs but jonathan eventually tries to escape and he finds the crypt 
and all the brides are in coffins sleeping with their eyes open as is Dracula. And so he tries to kill him with a shovel and it's totally ineffective. Dracula pretty much laughs that off. And that's pretty much it for Transylvania (laughs) at this point. And we go back to England where the Westenra family, which remember, and this includes Mina, has decided to holiday in Whitby. The uh, location footage shot actually in Whitby is one of the real strengths of this version too. But I want some clarification here on, on this bit. One thing that never really made sense to me and I have always had a hard time piecing together is Dracula's intent is to move to London, right? Carfax Abbey's in London, right? Yeah. 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 But somehow they all go to Whitby, which is way far from London. You know, it's in Yorkshire on the coast. And yet somehow Dracula has the storm drive the Demeter all the way here to crash on land. I think the discussion about Whitby has come up in the castle a couple of times in that, that, you know, in different versions, but I never really understood how Dracula sort of targeted or why he bothered to target Whitby. Like if his ultimate goal was to go to London anyway, it's just one of those things where Stoker kind of just like, "Mm, this is what happens, you know, or that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. I think in the book, it's this weird thing of sort of like, this is where Stoker's sort of Irish background is coming in. Vampires aren't supposed to be able to like comfortably cross water. And so the storm is like the sea, like violently rejecting Dracula less than him driving it. So it's just Victorian coincidence at its finest, really, um, that he ends up in Whitby. Okay. Well, uh, you know, it runs aground. He exits the ship in wolf form as usual. And, uh, his first victim is this old sailor who is the one who originally spotted the ship and pointed it out to the Westenra sisters. That night, a bunch of stuff happens. One, that the sailor gets, you know, vampired. Uh, <laughs> <victimed>. <laughs> um, we also have, as usual, Lucy sleepwalking. And Mina follows her and sees Dracula feeding on her. How, like, that wasn't a moment of, okay, uh, we're leaving this place. I don't know why. I just want to note the excellent use of live bats on Lucy's bed and hanging next to her bed. Whoever was the animal wrangler on that bat, like, pro. Just, it was great. (laughs) I don't know. I have to disagree here because the bat shows up at breakfast at one point. And the jump scare of the bat at breakfast wasn't very jumpy <laughs> and it also wasn't very scary due to them using like the most adorable looking fruit bat ever like, <laughs> like that is the cutest bat you wanted like one of those ugly pug nose vampire bats no they chose like this cute little fruit bat it's still better than the flappy bat fake bat yes. in um todd browning's dracula but still yeah until they get the bat right, I think Horror of Dracula was right to just be like, okay, we're going to avoid the like changing into the bat thing. <laughs> uh, one note, I liked that they were reading the newspaper at breakfast about the Demeter. Like, that was a nice, like, oh, that felt like something out of the novel. Yeah, yeah, I love that too. I think Dracula is a really sort of media-heavy novel, and it was nice to see sort of the nods to that with the newspapers and even like the phonograph use later. 
this part of the film for me was really interesting in that it had the scenes in the cemetery with the old man talking about the deaths by suicide, sort of setting up this idea of what counts as a good death <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, Dracula has to sort of grapple with in in any of its versions. Speaking of it being a media-heavy novel, I am about to throw out a multi-million dollar idea here. So any of our listeners can take this and run with it because I think this is like an award-winning movie idea for you here, which was also probably going to be very commercially successful. Someone needs to redo Dracula as a found footage film. Like where it, because it would follow that sort of epistolary novel kind of method you know except for like we've had so many good found footage horror why can't they do dracula like that yeah there you go someone you know send me a royalty check for that when you make it because (laughs) i'm telling you it would be good we should have mentioned that quincy and arthur have been combined in this version so we get another amalgamation here it's quincy homewood and Quincy and John are kind of baffled by what's going on with Lucy. So they send for Van Helsing to come and see if he can diagnose what's wrong with Lucy. And he sees all the signs and like has the bedroom strewn with garlic. Not that it helps because the next night Dracula in wolf form jumps through the window, smashing it, kills Mina and Lucy's mother or she dies of fright. I'm not sure exactly how she dies here. But she's always ends up dead from that encounter. And uh, the next morning, Lucy is as pale as death. And they try to revive her a bunch of times. And, you know, it's always a losing battle in these things. And she dies. I actually really liked this scene when Dracula bites Lucy. And we see the shadow of her dancing in the foreground like the sense of her innocence leaving and dancing away like I actually thought that was you know it doesn't work in a lot of the places but that was one of the places where that superimposed animation was great yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I also like how funny Van Helsing is in this version when they're putting the garlic around and he says the door uh uh, what's that called they say oh the jam and he says the the jam the the jam of the door really like <laughs> just it was, yeah you know he's perfectly batty in this film mm-hmm. in addition to Dracula who is super seductive and all that at least starting in media you know Christopher Lee sets us on this path with the Hammer Draculas and this takes it to the next level but Van Helsing is also pretty charming with the ladies in all these versions. And that somehow doesn't get mentioned that often. I wanted to mention Quincy's Texas accent. It's terrible. At first I was like, this is a bad Texas accent. But then I'm like, well, you know what? I'm not British, but I'm guessing like British accents by a lot of actors in these Dracula movies is even worse. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but we might be doing something... (laughs) (laughs) involving Keanu Reeves in the future here. And I'm going to have serious things to say about accents in that one. (laughs) I just thought I'd throw that out there that Quincy's Texas accent at first bothered me, but I got used to it after a while and was able to like 
suspend disbelief enough to be like, okay, that's Texas-ish. I wanted to talk about some of the dialogue that I don't think is in the novel, but was here that I thought was really good. There's a point where Van Helsing is confronting Dracula, and Dracula's like, yes, yes, it always sounds more impressive in Latin. Yes, I loved that line. I don't think that's from the novel, but I, it, was, it was so good. In most of these things, the seductive Lucy's brunette and Mina is blonde. And blonde is like the purity and brunette's the wantonness. This is like an old Victorian stereotype. Until in America, like circa, you know, the 1940s, 50s, after the femme fatale thing, we get the blonde bombshell thing. And then from that point on, it's reversed. The blonde is always the wanton sex pot and the brunette is the more pure one. girl next door. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because now we're living in this age where where we think like that stereotype is the opposite. Yeah, although the Victorians were sort of aware of it and they played with it. Like a really huge example would be something like Lady Audley's Secret where the main character is this bigamist fraudster who like basically goes mad in the end. But um, anyway, she's blonde and she's got that sort of pure thing. And so she fools everybody. And that's like what the horror of it is. So it's it was a trope, but it was one that got played with even at the time. Ah, OK, it makes a big jump back to pursuit back to Transylvania. Van Helsing and Mina head to the castle and the others follow the gypsies. They're fighting the gypsies. Mina shoots one of them, which I thought was a nice detail in this version. Final thoughts about this particular one. I did not expect to like it this much. I expected it to be incredibly dry. But... A lot of Dracula stuff is just lacking in atmosphere, and this one had that. And so I'm willing to deal with all the drawing room talk that you get in a BBC production in exchange for a legit-looking castle, a legit-looking Carfax Abbey, real location footage, stuff like that. Also, I think Jordan, is that how you say his last name? Sure, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> is really excellent. The seductive Dracula. He takes it another step beyond... Christopher Lee version. The Christopher Lee version, right? So yeah, so now we're on this other path toward the seductive cape-wearing Romanian count that takes us pretty far from where we started with Lugosi and really far from Nosferatu, which we will talk about soon. One of the things I like about this version is that Mina has the encounter with Dracula before things are like completely finished with Lucy. And so there's this conflict that she's dealing with in that overlap of, you know, she goes to visit Renfield to try to figure out what to do, what's what's she in for. And it led to some interesting scenes that are like kind of in the book and kind of not, you know, reading into things a little bit in the novel in a way that was dramatic and interesting and, and made her character more like there was more stuff there than just her being a victim. She was also having to make some difficult choices. 
Yeah, I haven't seen this one before. I think I've maybe seen one or two adaptations, and I've read a lot of novel adaptations. And I guess the thing that I always judge them by is how they treat Mina, which I felt like this one did a fairly good job with her. Because one of my sort of pet theories about Dracula is that Mina is actually the protagonist. She has a much more active role in the novel than we see in any of the movies. But And I, I liked what they did with her here, like with the, the shooting and the proactively seeking out Renfield and that kind of thing. I thought I thought she was a really strong character. But overall, like I think... I, I would agree like that the atmosphere and the setting like the that's really on point. I think pacing for me, like this movie <laughs> because it tried to be so faithful to the novel, it really dragged at points, which like we had to skip through just to talk about it. Um but overall I thought it, it did a did a really good job of like pulling out the sort of core themes. Cause Victorian novels I think are probably fairly hard to adapt in terms of how like I don't know Henry James called them baggy monsters famously and I think that's an accurate and like fair assessment so like yeah I th- that was a, a a baggy monster of a reply sorry <laughs> no 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 it makes sense also I, I want to say because I haven't gotten a chance to say this in any of our Dracula podcasts I agree about Mina as the protagonist I think that there's definitely a I don't want to call it feminist, but something along those lines going on for the Victorians where it's like in the beginning, they try to keep everything secret from Mina. They're like, oh, it's too much for her. Don't let her know, you know, and that's like that ends up being a terrible mistake. Like and then once she knows, like she does a lot to help the situation. Yeah. Let us know your thoughts. You can write to us at GC8 podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight podcast at gmail.com. Some people love this version and it's their favorite version. A lot of people hate it for the fact that it drags. So let us know. I want to thank Courtney Floyd for being here. What's going on with the podcast right now? The way we haunt now? Yeah. So we're um, right in the middle of production on our third and final season. Um, so we have 52 speaking roles this season, which is uh, kind of outrageous for like an indie audio drama. Um, we went all out um, wrapping up our haunting and um, hopefully we'll have new episodes out in March. Awesome. OK, well, uh, we will have Courtney back for uh, another Dracula adaptation. Until then, this is Eric. This is Johanna. This is Courtney. (laughs) (laughs) Signing off. Like, because he forbids them to to feed off him and brings them a baby instead. (sighs) I said we weren't going to get into the baby, so we'll leave that for now.